0: This year, the DPP produced a trilogy of reports focused on live content. Live remote production looked at how and where live content is now being produced. The business of live explored changes in the market and particularly the emergence of something called live direct to consumer. And the final part of the collection was working live, which examined what all these changes mean for the workforce that brings live content into existence. The reason we did all this work was because of the extraordinary boom in live content that's been going on during the pandemic, hardly something that people predicted. And now with crowds beginning to return to live events, that boom is just continuing. So when we reflect upon this phenomenon and the work we've done on it, what have we learned? Is this the content type that could yet prove the next big disruptor? And will the way it is made be changed forever by the pandemic? Thanks very much for joining us for the latest DPP podcast. My name is Mark Harrison, I'm the CEO of the DPP. And as always, I'm joined by this other guy, although this time he had to jet in from the med to make this recording.
1: Yeah, absolute commitment to the cause here, Mark. I'm Rowan de fomeray I'm CTO of the DPP, just home from the great joy of an actual foreign holiday this year.
0: But even more exciting, Rowan, than having you here as an actual Brit who is actually sun-kissed this summer, I am joined by two other brilliant people. Welcome, first of all, to Helen Colleen, who's Director of Production for Non-Scripted for ITV Studios.
2: Hi, Mark, um, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Yes, I'm here from Costa del Sorry, nowhere as exciting as Rowan, but I'm really pleased to be joining the chat and obviously with my background in daytime with ITV, I've done a lot of live telly, so I've got a fair bit to say on the subject.
0: Well, we're looking forward to hearing it. Thanks very much for being here, Alan. And we're also really pleased to have Marcos Gonzalez-Flower, who is head of the Global Media Competency Centre for ATOS. Hi there, Marcos.
3: Hi, Mark, and uh, thank you for inviting me along. Uh, I'm down here in deepest darkest east Coast, uh watching the uh, british summertime as it whizzes past faster than a toilet roll off a shelf during a pandemic mm-hmm. uh, so uh, it's quite interesting for us in um, sport world spent a lot of time supporting the olympics uh, as you probably are aware from a number of different angles and just seeing what the shifts in demand from customers are so looking forward to just having a nice conversation and see what everyone else thinks.
0: Well, great to have you here, and by the way, big thanks again to Atos whose support made this report series possible. So it's been it's been a real pleasure to work with you and your colleagues through this, and and thanks for enabling it. Okay, and let me actually begin with you because just you know from what you've just said, um, you know about uh, working for a company that is very very heavily involved in. In live content, um, when you look back upon the work that we've
3: done with you, folks, what, what really stands out for you? Um, I think it's uh, there's it, it a couple of uh, a couple of main points that, that kind of come up to the forefront. I think one of them is um, the old expression of was it necessity is the mother of invention, and the uh, consequences of lockdown and pandemic and uh, schedule black holes, holes caused by cancelled sports events, etc., yeah. has meant that on both sides, we've seen quite a big change in both the way content is produced and the need to do not only remote production, but distributed production as well. And on the consumer side, where we've seen people being forced to become digitally savvy. So no longer do we get uh, our parents or older relatives with their foreheads appearing on the camera, they're becoming quite adept at being proper silver surfers. And I think that's one of the main things now that, uh, as they say, that once we evolve, we never go back. And I think yeah. the evolution into a digital consumer of content who is going to demand more from uh, an an industry that is struggling to keep up with the pace of change is going to be really interesting.
0: Oh, that is a good point because I guess it it has accelerated uh, the fact that, that now kind of all forms of content by whatever means of distribution over whatever platform are all there to compete with each other in a way that perhaps even 18 months, two years ago, they weren't quite, just because lots of demographics weren't
3: really yes. confident in how to access them. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the point, that whereas before, uh, people would sit back, let it happen, follow a few of the main uh, players to consume content online, what happened was they found there was no content. It was repeats, duplicates, there was a lack And so not only were they engaging with friends and colleagues and and commerce online, they started to search for content. Uh, And content is a bit like water. It will always find its way out and it's found its way to people and they've been able to actually really embrace a, a digital way of identifying and consuming and actually looking for more in their relationship with their live content moving forward. And I think yeah. that represents a big challenge for live productions now. But also a, a huge opportunity, of course.
0: And, and this is the thing that I referred to in the intro as being live direct-to-consumer or live hmm. D2C that we didn't, again, really talk about that much uh, before. But um, I think it's, it's now, Rowan, don't you think it's a, it's a meaningful concept, live D2C?
1: yeah i think it absolutely is and and you know we've we've shifted beyond uh, uh, just a world of video on demand or live channels into a, a world where you know live content can can come and go and start and stop and and actually you know there there is far less constraint around the way that, that live concept content is delivered and and obviously that shows particularly strongly in something like the olympics right where we can be scaling from uh you know, a single opening ceremony to fifteen different sporting events happening all at once,
0: yeah, yeah, but you know what all this has really emphasized for us, I think during the pandemic is uh that give people the means and the opportunity to consume live content, and they just do i mean it just seems like human beings absolutely love it and and Helen, what really has struck me about? this boom in live content that we've had is that it feels almost as if we are reinventing appointment to view tv um this wasn't quite what people imagined when they said that linear would disappear is it
2: no i think you're absolutely right i mean for me what we've seen that's been you know escalated by the pandemic is just as you say people want to come together they want to feel connected And what live gives them, and particularly from my background in daytime, is they feel part of a national conversation. They're they're of the day, they're of the moment. And obviously there was only one story in town last year and we're moving away from that now. But we haven't seen a dip in our audience ratings. You know, they spiked during the pandemic and they've stayed there. Those viewers have, have come back. I think it's a combination of the fact they're working remotely so they can have their shows on in the background. But also, as I say, they want to feel a connection. And they want to have an online social conversation that's going alongside with what they're viewing in the same moment as their mates, their family, their work colleagues. They don't want to be watching something in isolation anymore. And certainly, that's what we're seeing—not just with daytime, but also with our big entertainment brands as well. You know, we've seen extraordinary audience ratings for "I'm a Celebrity," for "Love Island" as well this year, which the final is tonight, and uh, it's it's exciting. But you, you can definitely see a shift in that people wanting to connect.
0: Well, it's really profound, that isn't it? Because you would have expected there'd be this huge peak early on, and then in the pandemic, I mean, but then it would fall away. And the fact that it hasn't means that, as you say, something has profoundly shifted.
2: I think so. I think that live events and and live telly just they they connect people in a really unique way, and they affect the mood of the nation. You know, they bring people together yeah. and as we're all experiencing challenges, whether it's with our mental health, whether it's people have got, you know, long COVID, they've lost people through it. And whatever the story is, they, they, they found this kind of, if you like a forum where they can come to, to get informed, to feel connected and to get, you know, health tips, really mental health tips, stress tips, working at home tips. So I don't think we'll see a dip in, in our audience figures. People are working in a different way now and, and, you know, those viewers are, are here to stay.
0: Um, well, it'll be intriguing to see what happens as as we're able to do more and more socialising in large groups, and whether that will start to impact it, because people will get that kind of sustenance, that social sustenance from
3: in person again. Um, but, but time yeah. will tell. I think that the what we will see, and it depends on the nature of the live. I think we'll definitely see a, a polarising in focus of pre-recorded which will become increasingly commoditized, but the the sort of you know scripted pre-recorded whereas live events, live sporting events, live concerts, live just anything live, as Helen said, people love that connection, that unique sense of watching a story where the ending is not already determined mm-hmm. as it unfolds. And that is something you only get from live. As you watch, anything could happen, and we saw some of those anythings happen during the Olympics, where the favourites fell, the, uh, mm. the you know the the person who was due to get the javelin throw the best fell completely out of the ring, uh, various things like that. Where what happens is the story is not defined, and everybody watching it is sharing it with everyone else watching it and feels a unique connection. And then by supplementing that with social media and other connectivity mediums, they're able to actually have that sense of involvement rather than just consumption. And I think that's one of the big things that we'll see with live. And and as you said, Mark, people going back to stadiums and having that that shared involvement together, I think they'll take with them their Digital experience and expect a richer experience when they attend a live event. Yeah, I mean, this, is really,
0: this is really interesting when it comes to interactivity, isn't it? And, and that you know that term because what it suggests is that people really, really do not want interactivity with the story. Like they don't want Correct. agency in the story. They love the fact that they don't know what's going to happen. That's what they love in drama. That's what they love in live events. But they do want interactivity in the way they communicate with others and with the creators around that uncontrollable story.
1: Right. It's not interactivity with the content. It's interactivity around the content, right? It's interacting with other human beings about how you each feel about the content.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think doing that, I I suppose... What people are doing is uh, because they are responding; they're they're putting their hand up, as it were. They're generating a lot of a lot of data about mm. themselves and about what they what they think about the content. And I mean, Helen, I'd, I'd be interested to know what you think about about this as well as Marcos is, is, Do you think that this fact, the fact that you get so much digital activity around live content, is also going to be an important force for it in the future? Because with that data comes the opportunity to monetize
2: yeah i think i mean we talked a little bit about this on the session where i wasn't very successful at staying connected but <laughs> uh, yeah particularly you know with those big daytime brands that the show moves in the direction of the online audience so we have people dedicated in the gallery monitoring the online conversation around the content and they'll they'll change the running order, they'll change the content of the show that day, that week, based on that. And, you know, that's that's really important. But similarly, um, you know, we are able to monetize that through, you know, apps and through votes and through other ways of connecting with the show um, that are, you know, through different forums. But as you say, it's around the content rather than not necessarily about it. So I think, for 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 live shows like daytime, like news, you can respond in you know sort of immediate time. I think it's harder for sporting events, um, you know, where it's although the actual content's moving and you don't know the outcome, the event itself is fixed, isn't it? So it's it's not as yeah, easy to right. move the order around. But for for news and for daytime for topical shows, that's exactly what they're doing, and that's the, a part of the reason why they they've stayed so successful because people feel part of the show.
3: I think for. One of the things, uh, and you touched upon it there, Helen, about the um, the kind of, uh, I think it was about extending the relationship beyond the end of the show. Yeah. And I think we'll see a lot of, uh, and we see a lot of uh, work around this with fan engagement, where there is the actual event, the sporting event, which you have to produce and provide an engaging uh, way of consuming that, but also... There's the time around the event, which will be sort of the um, engaging, maybe allowing people to stadiums to see things that they wouldn't normally see before the event, afterwards providing access to content around their preferred players or teams or whatever it might be. And I think that the key word there is engagement. Um, Old um, Red Sumner said, uh, content is king. And distribution is a prince because without content, there's no interest, you can't capture everyone. And I think we're moving to a world where engagement is more the emperor because if you can engage, you can start to develop intimacy and understanding. And once you have that, you can monetize it. Because at the end of the day, for better or worse, most of the media industry is about making profits in some way, shareholders. Want money. Uh, Our pension funds want money, (laughs) uh, which is kind of a good thing to have. And the way they get that is through understanding effective targeting, uh, subscriptions, by creating content that matches the demographics they're targeting, by advertising in a way that targets specific people in an appropriate manner, where advertising is not a negative because it is relevant, because you understand me. Then I'm quite happy with it. And and all of that comes down to really finding a way to engage and gather information, which previously has been a bit of a challenge, let's face it. Broadcasting was standing on a roof shouting, then running around to see who heard it. Now yeah. we have a conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess pretty much everybody is a fan of something um, yeah so to maybe helen the skill of a broadcaster just starts to be working out what you're a fan of and then ensuring that there is you know an appointment to view kind of moment around that because if there is if there's something that you're busting for then it's it's quite likely you'll be led into spending some money around it somewhere
2: exactly i mean it's knowing your audience isn't it and for different genres and different programs those data metrics you know we're diving into those daily and hourly just to see who's watching the show how they're watching on what platform and then you can sell to that audience i mean for example with love island um with the final tonight we partnered with boots and you can shop for the makeup that the islanders are wearing or the products right. that they've put in their hair so it's that that's targeting a certain age mm. group 15 to 25s, they're on, on this morning and on the, the daytime shows, you know, it's a, it's a slightly older age group, it's maybe mums at home and they want to know what to cook that night so again on the app you can shop for what Phil Bickery just cooked in the kitchen and you can go straight through to the supermarket and buy the items, you can buy Holly's outfit so it's just knowing who that audience is making the content relevant making your shows trustable brands and then working mm-hmm. out how you can commercialise that and and not feel guilty about it because, you know, as you say we all need to make money as well as having the right intention for our programming.
3: And also if you're, if you're selling something that's relevant, I'm quite delighted to buy it. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it's right, It's right. good. And what, what I also find really interesting in all this though, Rowan, is that,
0: um, you know, this all happens at speed, you know, especially around live content. And as, as Helen said, it might even be that you're changing the show in real time. So this is data being generated at speed. Um, you are you are making commercial decisions in effect as well as editorial ones at speed and is this the thing that really you know that, that brings technology and editorial together in a true partnership like never before because they just have to be
1: well, it it does, but it's also about bringing the the production and the distribution together. I think you ah, know, when, yeah. when you're in a remote world or a distributed world, you know perhaps particularly if you're in a cloud production world, then the ability to understand what what viewers are doing, to take that feedback, you know, as Helen was alluding to, you know, to to then kind of process that into the content. Um, actually, it's it's just far, far easier. You've got the ability to collect and process and manage so much more information and and make decisions upon it compared to what we used to be able to do in the past. Yeah. Um, But but then you layer in those interactivity elements as well, you know, and, and... uh, I'm, I'm actually just just recently been uh, exploring a case study for a, a report that I'm writing for later in the autumn called "Streaming at Scale," um, where we've been looking at um, music concerts that have been you know streamed live during the pandemic, and and the way that you know chat and video chat and and shopping and uh, games are, are all layered on as additional experiences around this. And you think of you know the layers of complexity that there are, but also the, the information that they can generate for the producer and 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 for the commercial teams to to really act upon is is quite astounding.
0: Well, you have led us rather neatly uh onto the whole question of of how live content gets made nowadays. Uh because of course in this trilogy you led the piece of work that explored that and looked at at uh, new live production models. Um did it feel to you like some of the changes that happened during the pandemic I and mean, particularly that shift to remote and distributed production are here to stay?
1: Yes and no. <laughs> so I, I think that that what the pandemic really did for us in in terms of live production is to to push people more towards some form of remote production, to to break down resistance to to that change. Um, to to get people more comfortable producing in a a remote way. But I'm using the term remote production there incredibly broadly. Mm -hmm. So in in the live remote production report, we actually split that down. We, We defined five different uh, sort of production architectures, if you will. Um, and what we saw during the pandemic, I think, was a lot of move towards uh, distributed production, whereby you've got the audio and video capture obviously happening in 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 one location or a few locations, um, and then people using their existing investment in on-prem equipment, but working out ways for the production team to operate it remotely. So everybody sat in their own homes, controlling a you know a software control surface that that manages their on-premise vision mixer or or those kinds of things and that's been you know required to to keep people separated and and to keep people in their homes people were really however clamoring when we when we did this research to get that production team back in a room together Mm -hmm. there there is real value in that the question though is does that location where the production team are together does that need to be where the action is happening and the answer often is no so I think what we're going to see is a lot more centralized production uh, which is where the, the equipment and the production team are in one place but remote from where the action is happening you've just merely got sort of cameras and, and mics and so on on site or uh, cloud-based production whereby you know the, the processing is all happening in the cloud but again you know people very much preferring to have a control room space where where the director and the vision mixer and the sound mixer can can all be sat together so yeah we have definitely seen the pandemic push us forward but i don't think the models we've seen a lot of over the last year will be predominant
0: going forwards oh that's really interesting yeah i mean helen is that is that what you're seeing particularly now that at itv in the uk it's starting to be possible for people to come back into buildings together again
2: yeah it's a it's a combination so um I've got a couple of examples of that i mean love Island um has worked exactly the way Rowan's just described. you know the whole gallery are together at Grazing Road and with very little um technical crew out and on the site in Majorca and it's worked um it's costly as a one off to set it up It's obviously more sustainable because you're not flying lots of people out and that produces some cost savings but um I know there is a desire within the team to bring everybody back together next year. And we'll look at that and, and discuss what elements of it can stay remote, what worked and what didn't. And for the creative teams, when they're you know getting together at the end of the day, just being in the same room rather than a virtual room is obviously of, of benefit. And then I think to, to Rowan's point around accessing on-prem kit via sort of remote access tools, if you like, that's exactly how daytime have operated for the last year. And although using things like No Machine has been successful, we now need to build a more resilient, permanent, remote um, way of working, which is why we're investing in cloud. And we've taken five of our 11 edit suites, dedicated suites, out of action and moved them into the cloud. And we're about to go live with those. Um, if that's a success, then you know we'll look to do that with more of them. And obviously, what that does is free up office space. Obviously, what everybody's doing is looking at their office space and saying, well, right, let's reduce our footprint of of people in the office by 50 or 40 percent so there there isn't the space for people to come together and people are going to have to work out when do we need to be together in the production process and when can I work remotely and I think if you map out the life cycle of a show there are points where it's really beneficial for creatives to be in the same space but there are points where it's a nice to have and I think that's that's going to be key to being successful in the future.
0: So do you think Helen there's going to be some some quite tricky internal debates that will start to happen because people who look at expenditure you know at the budgets are going to notice that you saved a lot of money working remotely people who really care about the environmental footprint of the organization are going to notice that there were some big sustainability benefits but meanwhile the creative impetus might be driving a return more to former ways of working. Is that going to be uncomfortable?
2: I think there, there, there will be a lot of uncomfortable conversations. There will be a lot of, you know, um, difficult and tricksy thinking around the way that we work in the future. I think key to that, though, is remote working, uh, it sounds like, you know, the ideal solution and and the fix all, unless you've got a really robust and super resilient, diverse um technical backup you and and connectivity you you can't be confident in a big brand like love island or like i'm a yeah. celebrity that it's going to work so that needs to be the number one driver in the conversation that it's going to be robust enough to work and then everything else comes from that and i think it needs to be a coming together of minds and listening to the creatives to say this was really hard actually to do and we had to do it because of covid but ideally if we want the best show we wouldn't and yet this was this was easy to do and therefore how can we create a hybrid now in the future as I said throughout the production cycle where people come together when they have to when it benefits the show but but we retain some of those great uh, ways of working that we've developed much more quickly than we would have um, but have been a great success and I think those conversations will be difficult but they're going to have to be had and people like me directors of production heads of production they'll be driving them because they'll be looking at the sustainability and the finances and also the technical side as well and trying to bring all of that together in a balanced way.
0: Marcos, are you hearing a lot of conversations about, if you like, some of the, the accidental benefits such as yeah. environmental sustainability <laughs> now, now becoming a permanent
3: consideration? I think some of them are, are accidental and some of them have been found uh, quite right. deliberately. Um, so we've been working on a project with uh, discovery Eurosport, the uh, ETT mm. project. And that was driven partly by them understanding the utilization of their production suites and realizing that they have multiple production suites spread across Europe. And, of the time, they weren't being utilised because the team was in the wrong place for the suite that they needed the capability. And so they wanted to be able to have a virtual capability uh, in the way that they automatically configured the suites according to where the team was and the nature of the event that they were actually producing. And then they would have two major data centres and just have the control surfaces in the the facilities, in the different offices, that would reduce headcount. But one of the things that was key to that was this notion of a team being in a location. Because I think that uh, as somebody who's been dealing with having a team spread across the place himself uh, and having to do everything online, there is a limit to how collaboratively and how much you can engage without the physical signals that you get when you work with somebody in the same room and so that creative process etc is still required and i think that um what's happened is that has driven so the idea was maximum utilization of resources squished it down squished down the number of Empty spaces, like Helen was saying, the idea of pushing the edit suites into the cloud, finding ways to, to actually save on real estate, ultimately results in a saving. Uh, I think that what we will see, though, is on blue ribbon shows, on real premiere uh, quality events, they will still need a team to be located together. There may be others where you could find Uh, some distributed production taking place for different areas of the production as a way to reducing cost. Not so much driven by the desire for sustainability, but at the end of the day, really driven by the desire to pull down cost and real estate is one of the biggest costs for a lot of productions. Right, right. Um,
2: And actually, Mark, just to jump in on a point uh, there, around teams coming together i think with certain genres um it it works because those teams have worked together for a very long time so th- those cues that you were just talking about those emotional cues that are hard to read on zoom or google Hangout. Yeah. um you kind of know them because you know the <laughs> yeah, you've, yeah. Got an honest, you've got an honest relationship whereas if you're bringing the team together quite rightly it, it that's all very difficult to do yeah. and that yeah. kickoff meeting and establishing those relationships that's very hard to do remotely so i think that's my point around the production life cycles when do you need to bring them together when can they go off and have an honest robust conversation around that because that's that's more difficult to do when you haven't got established relationships.
0: Helen are there also growing pressures from outside though around particularly you'll need to demonstrate that you're being kind to the planet when you make these big shows Do do the public now care about this?
2: Well, it's interesting you ask that because I would say we've had more inquiries in the last twelve months um, to our viewers inquiries team around how we make our shows and how sustainable they are than ever. So that yeah. is it's absolutely true. There is a growing trend of people wanting to know that what we're doing and how we're doing it and if we're behaving responsibly, and that's all types of content from news and daytime, you know, right up to your big uh, entertainment shows. And then there is this growing trend of people that we're trying to attract to come and work with us. That sort of, you know, more younger Gen Z generation, if you like, they want to know that they're going to go and work for a responsible employer that's doing good in the the planet. And that's becoming more and more important as we we go and find those people out in unis and out in schools and try to bring them into the media and into telly. That's one massive thing they care about. And so we need to care about it. And we need to respond to that and do it in an honest way, not just in a box ticking way. You know, it can't just be, oh, everybody stopped using water bottles and everybody stopped. <laughs> scripts. It's got to be much deep, more deep rooted than that. And actually, you know, doing some things that are uncomfortable and difficult to do and changing behaviours um, rather than just ticking a box.
0: So it sounds in conclusion, if we sort of look overall at how live content is going to be made in, in the years ahead, as if there's, there's likely to be a greater separation uh, from uh, the kind of production process and location in, in some instances, not always, but in some instances, there's going to be greater um, uh, sort of separation between people and hardware. Um, but there's going to be this almost like sort of amoeba-like tendency for sort of groups of people to keep coming back together in various sort of clusters at various points. Is, from each of you, just because we must close now, but is that kind of your sense of how it's looking from here?
3: Yeah, I think uh, I think, uh, and it's it's kind of happening today in the way we see digital workplaces being developed where there are far more flexible spaces that are required for people. As Helen said, when you come together and try to create that sense of team and and learn the cues from each other at the beginning, it sort of comes together and then they can go off and do remote content. So I think we'll see workplaces becoming far more uh, collaborative, temporary spaces that can be reconfigured very quickly and are constantly changing according to the team that's coming in to familiarize themselves with each other before moving on
2: i'd absolutely agree and and Creating those spaces is going to be the focus of a yeah. lot of big media production companies for the next 12 months. They might be saving someone rent, but they need to be spending it on changing the layout of their offices to be creative environments, as Mark's just said, where large groups of people can come together in a in a safe way because everybody's still wearing masks in business, aren't they? And and also that they allow people to feel creative. That you can pop in a mm-hmm. the booth if you need to go on a hangout or make a call, but then you can go into a bigger meeting. So I think getting those spaces right is really important and. What I'd really like to see perhaps with the DPP as well is a lot more sessions in the next 6 to 12 months around, you know, what what is out there? What are big players in this market doing to make the office space and the virtual world and the coming together and the hybrids the most seamless and enjoyable way of connecting possible? Because at the moment, we're half getting it right and we need to do better.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and we've seen um, some businesses really t- start to take strides in this area. You know, I, I can think of a an OB company that we've spoken to. I can think of a telco we've spoken to who are who are using spaces that that previously were were for other purposes and actually turning them into regionalized production hubs. I think uh, you know, maybe, maybe my next big business idea, which I shall share here for someone to steal, is that <laughs> we we perhaps need a. We work for, for media production, you know, to, to have actually different centres where, where remote teams can come together uh, in in all sorts of different locations um, is something that, that people seem to be crying out for.
0: Well, uh, what I feel I'm hearing in conclusion is that uh, although we've managed to, through all this, get rid of some of our technical debt, uh, we've actually been living off our relationship credit uh, through this. <laughs> And uh, you know, it's been our existing relationships that have actually helped us to negotiate it so well. But as as time passes and we have to start forming new relationships, whether it's business relationships or creative relationships, collaborative relationships, then you know we are going to be be, be forced to um, to bring people together again in, in ways that feel more familiar to us. Um, but look, you know, thanks so much to, to Marcus and to Helen for making time to join us there. i really enjoyed talking to you about this. Um, and, uh, and of course, thanks, as always, to, to Rowan for doing this with me. Um, and thanks to you for joining us for this latest DPP podcast. We hope to uh, be with you again in another few weeks. Bye for now.